Find the way. Yidil Elvirish presents. In this program of We Can Find the Way, I will be covering the subject of the organizational numbers with the UN office Giuseppe De Paolo. Welcome back to another program of We Can Find the Way, a podcast about conflict resolution. My name is Yidil Elvirish. In today's program, my guest is Giuseppe De Paolo, who is the Ombudsman for United Nations Funds and Programs. His team helps to prevent and resolve work-related disputes within UNDP, UNICEF, UNFPA, UNOPS, and UN Women. Before joining the UN, Mr. De Paolo was chairman of the board of ADR Center, one of the largest providers of mediation services in Europe. Before that, he was the International Professor of ADR Law and Practice at Mitchell Hamline School of Law, where he taught negotiation courses. He also provided expert advice to national and supranational parliaments and advised ministries of justice and economics of several countries on dispute resolution policy. He has written extensively on mediation, and some of his publications have been translated into multiple languages. Mr. De Paolo graduated law school in Italy at the University of Bologna. He got his LLM at the University of California, Berkeley. He also has a degree in political science from the University of Urbino, also in Italy. In this program, we discuss why the UN implemented an ombuds policy, what an ombuds office does in an international organization, the trend towards organizational ombuds, the differences of working in an international organization vis-a-vis the private sector, and the easy opt-out system in his native Italy. I would like to underline that in this podcast, Giuseppe speaks in his official capacity as the Ombudsman for United Nations Funds and Programs. However, given his previous experience as, as both an academic and president of a mediation services provider, he agreed to share his views informally about mediation law and policy in his native country of Italy and other countries he has worked on. Let's now move to the interview that took place on 22nd October 2020 via Zoom. Giuseppe, thanks for agreeing to talk to me today. You're the Ombudsman for the UN Funds and Programs. Please tell us what your office does. Well, first of all, thank you, Idil, for having me. It's been a long time. It makes it even a greater pleasure. The Ombudsman for the Funds and Programs is the informal part of the United Nations justice systems. The United Nations, as you know, has its own legal system. Everyone who joins the UN, whether it's a volunteer or a consultant or staff, essentially surrenders its national law in terms of the employment relationship with the employer, the United Nations. And for that reason, the United Nations has its own legal system, which has a formal component, including the United Nations Dispute Tribunal as a trial court and the United Nations Appeals Tribunal as the appellate and final court, for example, an employment dispute related to termination of a contract. And as it has that formal side, it also has an informal side, ombudsman and mediation, to prevent and resolve these disputes at the very early stage or even when they are pending in court 
outside of the court system. That is the main function of the ombudsman. The funds and programs are five agencies of the 20 plus agencies, mostly humanitarian. That's the focus. UNICEF, the Children Funds, UNDP, the Development Program, UNFPA, the Population Fund, UN Women, the Entity for the Development of Women's Rights, UNOPS, the United Nations Office for Project Services. Altogether, these five agencies employ around 70,000 people scattered in 192 countries and around 800 offices. All these people, regardless of the kind of contract they have, they have access to the ombudsman to prevent and resolve in an informal, amicable way all kinds of employment-related disputes. So that's where we sit as a resource for staff, but also for management when there is a situation that might evolve into a conflict or when there is an actual conflict as a way to not to resort to the formal adjudicative system of dispute resolution for the UN. Why was this needed? It looks like there's a tendency in all large intergovernmental or uh, international organizations to resort to this? Well, it's an interesting question, especially at this time, just last week, Ombuds Day or Ombudsman Day right, was celebrated right, right. internationally, also in the United States. In the United Nations, my understanding, it started, of course, well before me, I joined five years ago. The debate began very early on, maybe 24 years ago. And the idea as this bureaucracy was growing and people from all over the world working together, we're starting to, you know, have disputes. People would be fired. People would argue with their supervisor, with their peers, with their supervisees. Work environment could become toxic. I'm not saying something new. If you look at the news, the sexual scandals, the harassment, all of that was happening. And the proposal was made. We need to, as we are making available a tribunal to staff, we also need to make available something else. And I'm told the initial discussion and the reason why it took more than 20 years to go from the initial proposal of an ombudsman mediation office to its establishment was the reluctance in terms of people who work for the UN will not have those problems. We choose the best and the best people do not get into disputes. That proved to be very wrong. At some point in time, the funds and programs almost 20 years ago decided to come together. This is also pretty unique. Five agencies that are legally separate legal entities decided to pull the resources and establish this joint office. And the reason was, again, this realization of the difficulties of working together. I believe the reason was also cost, average cost of a trial within the United Nations tribunals, as opposed to the same problem being processed through mediation, for example. And the difference is extremely significant. And I would say the idea that just as the United Nations stands for informal amicable resolution, including via mediation wherever possible, this is a resolution, the UN should do internally what it preaches externally. Do you think all of this drive towards informal justice mechanisms are going to render internal dispute tribunals like moot at some point? No, not at all. God forbid that. But if you look at the numbers of cases processed through informal means, as a proportion in relation to how many are processed differently, you can see that the scope, the number, the size of the alternative dispute resolution market or services is far less. So to borrow some language from the European Union Directive on Mediation, it's, it's really desirable, in my view, that there be some sort of balanced relationship, that the number, a percentage of all the cases that go through litigation be treated with mediation first. It could certainly work in more cases than it used today. And this is the idea behind not only 
creating the supply, establishing ombudsman and mediation offices, but also stimulating the demand by appropriate policies, awareness, and encouragement. Basically, it's almost like a filter before a tribunal in terms of all the things you have said, cost, more human, managing a bureaucracy, socially desirable. Absolutely. And the word filter is not just a metaphor, it's actually used in the language because the idea is the realization is conflict is going to arise no matter what. And conflict is naturally bound towards adjudication. Adversarial is part of our human nature. So you want to channel those cases in a way that those that are suitable for mediation, for example, can access that particular channel as opposed to be naturally attracted towards adjudication. And I was mentioning the word filter because indeed, when you establish an alternative channel, the risk is that the channel is not going to be big enough. The channel is going to be abused and every case is going to go through mediation. We don't want organizations, even at the UN, to be run by mediators. Like we don't want those organizations to be run by lawyers right? or investigators if we look at the media. The way the system is designed, it's really to make sure that people experiment or consider mediation so that the cases that are appropriate stay in that channel, but the ones who are not go directly to litigation. For example, one organization that has the longest experience in this area, the World Bank, has a system that basically says if one party invites the other, I'm oversimplifying here, but to mediation, the invited party must show up. He or she does not have to settle, of course, doesn't even have to go through mediation all the way through, but has to sit down and listen. And that mandatory requirement of showing up, which is the first step, only applies where the mediation division has decided that the case is suitable for mediation. Oh. We don't want all cases there. As opposed to have all cases that do not belong there, there is somebody filtering the cases that are suitable that are not. Because litigants might not know the plaintiff might be too enraged, the defendant might be in denial. So you want somebody that's certified that that investment is a cost. You have excluded UNHCR from the agencies you have mentioned. And we see, especially in the migration crisis, UNHCR more and more relevant. The High Commission for Refugees has its own Geneva-based ombudsman office that has been right. there for a long time. The question is, why do we have multiple ombudsman offices? But there are many more. The Secretariat, Peacekeeping, has its own right. um, I was ombudsman office. Yeah. And so there is not a single office. So there are multiple ombudsman offices. Normally, large organizations have their own or they share, like in my case. The smaller organizations don't. Is a question of budget or right. resources. They might use the service contract right. the service of another ombudsman office, or they might have, you know, standby on-call consultants for those. One thing which is important to underline, ombudsman and mediators serve and their jurisdiction is limited to internal employment-related disputes. So, for example, a migrant who is not able to have his application right. process would have access to UNHCR, but there would not be the ombudsman. There would be other Folks, for example, facilitating the right. dealings with the national authorities for a recognition of a status. So the same goes for the Bretton Woods institutions, IMF, they have their own ombudsman service. And we do something important. We do have a larger entity that brings together the ombudsman from the UN system and Bretton Woods and also others to discuss common themes. It's called UNARIO, United Nations and Related International Organization. So it's an acronym. And also within the UN, there is a more specific of the UN agencies only grouping called CEB that brings together the 
heads of the various ombudsman offices to discuss UN-specific cases. But it's interesting, this movement to have the ombudsman speak to one another for problems that are common. How is the role different here than a national ombudsman in terms of politics and otherwise? Because I understand that you do some investigations internally in these cases as well. So Tell us a little bit more. It's a very good question, Idil. In fact, under the name of umbrella of ombudsman, there are many different things. First of all, I would say to your listeners, according to the General Assembly of the United Nations, ombudsman is a gender neutral term. Some people call it ombudsperson. Some people call it ombudsman. They call this ombudsman. There are multiple definitions and subdivisions, but I think that the main distinction is between two types of ombudsman. The first one is the one you're referring to, which is ombudsman advocate or the original ombudsman. In Scandinavia, the word means representative. And historically, it's been somebody who brings the voice of those with less power to the authorities. It's somebody who's difficult or impossible to retaliate against, and he or she will speak to normally the public administration, to the government when something is wrong. So the citizen would go to, to him, the affected people, and he or she would speak to power. I believe that is the model of the European Union Ombudsman. She is a currently a colleague from Ireland, chosen by the parliament, is accountable only to the parliament and has independence, for example, from the European Commission as the European administration to raise Concerns. In the United Nations system, we do not have that model. The model certainly of my office and the other offices I mentioned is what we call the organizational ombudsman. And the organizational ombudsman has been defined informally, I love this, as the internal outsider. You are an employee, but you are an outsider in that you're completely independent, you are completely confidential, you are neutral, and you are informal. So you are inside internal, but you have high degree of equidistance from the parties, staff and management, even from your employer, in that you are able to speak the uncomfortable truth. Are people happy? Are they very unhappy here? Why is this policy applying here and not there? Why is this happening in this particular part of the world is not happening here? The idea, again, this is common to the first model of, of speaking to the power without fear because you are insulated. Very difficult, I think, to get rid of an ombudsman. To be honest with you, I don't think that my current terms of reference speak about the dismissal of an ombudsman. They speak about the selection of an ombudsman, which is the most complicated process there is. It's protected. Once you hire the person, it doesn't mean that I can commit any violations. I'm a staff member. I'm internal. So I'm subject to the staff rules. But if it comes to my opinion, to my challenging a particular decision, to my trying to broker an agreement where a party does not want there to be an agreement, I'm very protected in that regard. So independence, which is also it is of all ombudsman is a common element of the two modalities. So where the difference is that we have a mandate which is, I think, stronger in terms of the informal resolution. Wherever there is any workplace related, then we can suggest changes, we can advocate for what's just and fair. Of course, as we see it, and we can facilitate agreement between peers, between employer and employee, between supervisor and supervisee. We have a mandate to engage more in informal resolution and settlement of dispute. That would be, I think, the main divide. Sometimes the advocate ombudsman is seen as some sort of a public defender. You go there and if you are David, you are helped 
raise your voice against Goliath. In a sense, we can do that, but it's not our focus. With respect to the investigations you mentioned, in our system, we only do what we call informal fact-finding. Investigations into misconduct, that's done by an office, which is called the Office of Investigation, which is a formal process for disciplinary sanctions. But of course, when somebody calls up and say, look, there is an issue in this particular office, this is happening, we need to find out what's going on. So we will just pick up the phone or just visit when it was possible travel to what we call the country office and just speak to people. You know, I'm the ombudsman. I'm here to help. It's informal. There is no records. It's just me trying to understand what's going on to see if I can help. So that would be informal fact finding. But in other systems, it may be, actually, I know for a fact that other ombudsman offices are tasked with conducting formal investigation. That is no go. This is kind of taboo for us. There is a major divide between the formal processes including investigations, tribunal, and the informal processes which are managed by the Ombudsman Office. So what are the most common workplace disputes that you see? How do you think these are different than in a commercial or business Mm. setting in an intergovernmental or international organization? The answer to the first one is easy for me. We publish every year an annual report. And that report has two parts. The first part is anonymized analysis of the cases. We don't mention names, but we talk about cases and we put them into groups and we follow the categories of the International Ombudsman Association just to compare numbers. The second part of the report is about the recommendations that are based on those numbers, those findings. Historically, I believe that in our last annual report, we provided data comparing the last five years and we have a consistency in that around 30%, it's about what we call evaluative relationship. This is essentially the relationship between the supervisor and supervisee, around 25%. It's what we call job security. That includes contract terminations, uh, contract no renewal, contract people non-selected for jobs when you fail in an application. The number three is a broader category called legal and regulatory, which includes all forms of harassment and uh, including sexual harassment. So it's no wonder based on what the media reported, why those numbers went up. With respect to your second question, it's really the difficulties of working together, of agreeing and negotiating internally about resources, about values, about priorities, about personalities, style. It is no wonder that the inevitability of disagreement of working together, especially in a large organization, even more so with it as a regulated bureaucracy. So a cost of uh, the economies of scales when you grow bigger is that the people living in those contexts will will disagree. They would disagree more as we interact more because of globalization, because of the flat world. So that means I think that the ombudsman will always be busy. Now that we're talking about workplaces, we know COVID is really changing the workplaces and offices and how office work is divided or even the office itself. So what is your prediction? How do you think this will affect a dispute resolution mechanism designed for actual office space? COVID has not affected our practice to a large extent. Our visitors are scattered in 190 countries. Almost consistently, 80% of our cases are away from headquarters, which for me is New York. That means only one case out of five is a case where I have a direct physical interaction with at least one of the parties. Even before it was telephone, Skype, and occasionally flying when it was possible. This is a complicated way for me to say that technology has always been there for us. The trend that seems to coming out of our 
a joint discussion with other ombudsman colleagues is that COVID has brought a great deal of frustration, great deal of stress. There are articles about mental health consequences, but overall, the number of cases brought to the attention of the ombudsman offices seem to have gone down. Mm-hmm. I suppose this is connected to the lack of physical interaction, of daily interaction. It can be very stressful if you have an ongoing disagreement, if you fear for your employment, for your evaluation. So that has changed that. What I predict will happen afterwards is that assuming that there is a time where we go back to some kind of normalcy, is that percentage of in-person interactions will be lower than used to be because we have seen both the inevitability, but also the effectiveness of some form of online intervention ombudsman, group facilitation, mediation, and therefore there will be more of that. We had planned to not use technology as much without incurring cost, because if a mediator is flown from New York to Turkey, it would cost money, right? Mm -hmm. It's twofold. One, which is happening as we speak, so the ombudsman office for the funds and programs has opened an office in Istanbul. We've finished recruitment for an office in Bangkok to serve the Asia-Pacific. We've also finished recruiting for Dakar, Senegal for the Francophone part. Hopefully, I'll be able to open an office also in Panama. So we are regionalizing presence of the ombudsman to make it more accessible, clearly. So if people need to go, they don't have to fly around the world. But also, we want to have a local capacity to serve staff. So we have established, and it's online, a global mediation panel where we have professionals who are accredited, trained, and live ideally in the same city where there is an office of our organizations so that they can go with the bicycle, with the car, or with the bus there and do the intervention, the mediation, the consultation, the group facilitation in person. That, again, was before COVID, but we hope that that will happen. So we have the value of um, that in-person interaction without having the cost, the risk, these days of travel, and so on and so forth. Do you think the trend in international organizations is also going to affect the businesses, big conglomerates, to have their own internal workplace mediations because we do see workplace mediation growing, but not very big, at least in continental Europe. Well, the answer is is a direct yes. And I'm actually surprised that not all large organizations do not have something like that. They do have internal mechanism because workplace conflict can be disruptive. And the fact that some of the larger organizations have it should be sign for the others. In terms of the research, a number of years ago, a study, I believe by the International Ombudsman Association, tried to assess the return on investment of an ombudsman program. Numbers speak about a dollar versus 14. I know that more recently, a very well-known multinational has redone its study internally And the study had, in the most conservative scenario, results where for every dollar the company established spent for the ombudsman program by looking at cost avoidance, avoided litigation, time, you would double that. You would get two. Different scenario would be one of four. So there is a straight economic bottom line reason for that. But I believe that especially these days, the driver is more philosophical one. I mentioned this idea of the business philosophy or corporate social responsibility. More importantly, especially for us, it's just the right thing to do. At least to experiment with it. You might establish a program. Some people approach me, how can we do this? I'm going to start from scratch. Before you invest all the money, you know, try to have a system in place. There are rules you can look at. You can have somebody on call 
or you can join an existing program so you don't have to put together the whole infrastructure. There is rule, there is awareness, there is acceptance. There is a, a lot of that. You know, you want to have your professionals trained. There are some costs associated with that. You want to have your firefighters trained, you know, to have the good trucks, to be shiny trucks ready to go. Of course, you hope not to use them if you're the mayor of a city, right? And when we know, conflict will happen. Right. So the question is not really if, but how, how effectively. The trend is fully justified. I know that the International Ombudsman Association is trying to show good examples and to have more organizations come on board. It is a fact, ideal that most of the ombudsmen in this country would be from academia. I would say 90%. I am pretty sure that a number of years ago, there was a law in Florida whereby you could not create a university without having an ombudsman program. And also hospitals have them all. So the idea is this is bound to happen right. for you to operate in that area. You have to have this mechanism. So it just tells you how public policy really can influence the yeah. development of an industry, of a sector. In academia itself, you need with all these like promotions, teacher to student relations and all these like issues, fights or all sorts of things within academia. <laughs> you really need an ombudsperson, if not more in law firms where there's a high turnover. Like you could think about this in like in every context. Professional but, firms have that. The McKinsey Company has right. had a long program for a long time. And speaking about academia, the largest universities have many ombudsmen. One just right. for faculty, right. one for what faculty for versus students? staff, another for students. And some other right. ombudsmen do them all because right. this is bound to happen and affects the, the community, the life of that right. academic community. How is working in an international or intergovernmental agency different than working in academia? or in a private dispute resolution provider, which yeah. you have also done. It was indeed a shock for me. You didn't choose your own team members. You are bound by very strict rules that you need to, to learn. You are exposed to a truly global workforce. And all we learn and teach about cross-cultural negotiation, communication, interaction becomes your daily life. It's very challenging. I think the greatest challenge for me has been becoming as a mediator in particular, a repeated client, and that's the employer. Right. We also mediate disputes between colleagues, between peers, but a good number of the mediations and the disputes um, will affect the contractual relationship. Remember, I said the right. number two category is uh, job security. So how do you maintain your independence and your neutrality when you have a repeated client? Here is also different, not just because you have that repeated player, but because the mediation can be a transaction, it could be the resolution of an issue, and then the employer and the employee continue their relationship. Or the two employees, supervisor and supervisee, having resolved an issue in mediation, remain in the same office every day. So there is this continuity. It's not with mediation, you're done. As people go their ways, they go back to do their business. They stay in that environment and you stay in that environment. You right. may meet them in the elevators, in the cafeteria. You can meet them at the conference, at a town hall meeting. So this idea of being both empathetic, as I believe an ombudsman and mediator should be, but also to be equidistant, is that equilibrium is hard. I have an office, so I have to fight for resources, right? Like everybody, I want to expand. Whom am I dealing with? I'm dealing with the hierarchy. And the hierarchy is the same hierarchy to which I can be acting as a check and balance. So how can you be effective in terms of advocating for resources, advocating for policy changes, and then finding those people at the mediation table? Are you going to be lighter 
easier on them or harder because of that. That's not just what you do, which is guided by your own ethics, but there's also the perception. So this idea is very important. So anybody who's embedding a dispute resolution program must really focus and everybody in those positions realize the differences when you are in a contained, almost captive environment, right. as opposed to be a free range mediator. They choose you because they like you. You do your job. They both share your expenses, which is very different. I'm paid. I am an internal outsider. So will you do this to keep your job? Will you do that to get a promotion? And that's why we cannot get a promotion. We have a system whereby you go through your mandate without your career being affected by how well or how bad you could do in the eyes of your employer. So there are some mechanisms you need to create to make sure that the system works. But very challenging, become an international civil servant and very challenging to be and like an embedded dispute resolution mechanism. How, in your opinion, this mandatory mediation system has evolved in Italy? Advantages, disadvantages? Sure. Thank you, Idil. And this is a discussion, I think, that talks about my past. I am now civil Let's servant of the United Nations. But I'm also speaking about the present because, as you know, there are discussions in public policy stands of certainly some agency of the United Nations in favor of a system that I don't like to call mandatory. In fact, in our annual reports for the last three years speak about of the system called an easy opt-out. What is meant by that in a very understandable, simple form, as I called in a recent interview, mediating mediation. And the notion is that all over the world, mediation remains sleeping beauty. Everybody says they want more of it. But she's sleeping. Some people say it's comatose, right, in certain places. Those who are advocating for a pure model of voluntariness, mediation will be tried if both or all parties want to, need to answer the question, which is how come after decades of mediation, promotion and awareness, number of mediated cases remains a tiny percentage of the litigated ones. So voluntary mediation is not widely used. That is not contestable that nobody can be forced to settle. So you have these two elements that are not homogeneous. Mediating mediation means to find a creative solution in between these two giants fighting one another. Voluntary mediation is not working. You cannot force people to settle. Well, the solution is in the easy opt-out model, something like the World Bank and the Italian mediation system, to find a way in the middle, which is to say you are not obliged to mediate you are obliged to give it a serious try. How you define that? You have to show up. But not showing up at the meeting with an information counselor or with a mediation advisor, mediation information assessment meetings, because if you want people to be more likely to go forward with the mediation, you want to put them in a situation where if they like the setting, if they like their mediator, if they like the attitude the other side has come to that meeting with, they can immediately proceed from that required initial meeting voluntarily to continue with the process. The legal underpinning for this model is clearly stated, certainly as far as the European Union jurisprudence is concerned, in multiple decisions of the European Court of Justice. The court says you can make it mandatory and actually says any system that is not mandatory is not going to be as effective. And then it says if you want to make it, the process has to be non-binding, mediation is. It doesn't have to be too long, and most rules would set that attempt must take place within 30 days or 60 days. Third, it must be either free or not very expensive. So if you impose, according to this 
the boundaries dictated by the court, a full mandatory mediation when people have to pay in advance, even if they don't want to, you are in breach of that requirement. But if you ask the parties to commit and pay just a small fraction for that meeting to commit and to reward the professional efforts, you are effective in mediation without violating that particular requirement. That's the problem with the mandatory mediation. But there is also the issue that people will be forced to go all the way through mediation for a case that might not be suitable. The easy opt-out model is called like this because at that first required meeting, you can decide to opt out. Of course, you can always opt out of mediation, right? But if you opt out at the beginning and when you have not spent a lot of time and money, it's easier to do that. So you're basically experiencing with mediation without committing fully to it. I like to say that it's like going to a restaurant where before confirming your order, you pay like a fraction just to taste a morsel of the pasta of the pizza. And if you like it, you order the rest. You have to pay only for that particular slice to do it. So that's the legal underpinning. The psychological scientific underpinning rests in behavioral economics and even on neurosciences and the physiology, the biology, decision-making. Taylor and Saskine on the book Nudge, we know and even before that we tend to do things that are default for us. If we need to make an effort to engage in mediation, if we need to agree where to go, how much to pay, whom to choose as a mediator, it's going to be much more difficult. We call an opt-in system. If you are in an opt-out system, you are already in that mediation. You remain free without negative consequences, other than you have to go to that initial meeting, to not to continue. It really is a compromise between the two. And that has been the Italian model for the last seven years. Our numbers are pretty good. In fact, the first thing that the Italian government did when COVID struck all disputes related to COVID will go mandatorily to mediation. So when the going gets tough, the tough, which is mediation, gets going. Now, to go from a model, which is a concept, to a system, it's a different story. How do you ensure quality when the market explodes? How do you set the appropriate cost? How do you deal with information? You don't just want mandatory mediation. You want alternative disputes resolution to floors. So the risk is just to focus on one product in losing sight of the context. But that is very indicative that if you are able to strike the right balance between the two giants, you have a system that works. When the legislator realized that the market would explode, the entry into force of the mandatory requirement for certain disputes was postponed by a year. The law imagined that would be a time for the industry to adapt, for the mediation market to grow. So that was a smart decision. Also, the disputes subject to this required initial meeting were not that many. And still today, it's only 10% of the total number of litigated cases that are filings every year. 90% of the total mediations happening in Italy are in those cases. Therefore, suggesting that even after seven years, people tend to mediate when they are already in mediation. The lawyers are the same. Sometimes the companies are the same. So it's not an issue of knowledge or culture. It's really an issue of policy as I see it. Real estate, inheritance, medical malpractice, libel, banking contracts. The law defines about 10 subject matter areas and On average, these areas account for around 10 to 12%. This is absolutely not much, and yet it has this enormous amount of disputes. So it's been estimated over 150,000 a year that if you extend the requirement, you could have like over a million mediations in a year. What's interesting, Idil, and the reason why I'm happy to speak about the Italian model is that that is very similar to the model of the World Bank I told you before. You have to show up at that particular meeting. And that is also my office has been recommending in our 
last Rian report for the United Nations to say, we want mediation to become the natural first step. You have to really consider that. Can you make something become natural? You can change people's mind, people's culture, but that takes forever. Or you can require in the regulation to do that. If you read my report, you will see that this is the recommendation made by my office and agencies are working around this notion that if somebody invites you to mediate, typically the plaintiff, and somebody neutral, the mediation office certifies that the case is mediatable, you as the defendant, you have at least to show up. Well, some countries adopt a fee-shifting mechanism, just like in Turkey, to make the parties appear there if they don't want to be liable for attorney's costs later in the litigation. Even if they prevail, I guess there are mechanisms. You have to have that. Otherwise, it would not be binding. Greece has followed the Italian model. I understand that other countries have currently either bills or laws that are about to enter into force. And the notion is mandatory is too much, has not worked. Voluntary is not. Let's find this kind of middle ground. But there have to be sanctions for people not showing up in the system. You mentioned in the Italian system, the sanctions are twofold. One is an economic sanction. And the second is the judge can draw arguments against your lack of participation. What's is more important to get for lawmakers is the model. And then each country, based on its peculiarities, legal system might devise incentive and disincentives, because they can also be incentives to mediate, not just disincentives such as sanctions, to make sure that the cases stay in the channel that initial attempt is serious enough. Okay, Giuseppe, thank you so much. Is there anything you would like to add or conclude by? No, just thank you for this opportunity and let's hope that uh, the next one will not be after so many years. To summarize this program of We Can Find a Way, I spoke with Giuseppe De Paolo, who emphasized that no matter how much you work with brilliant people in an organization or an office setting, conflict will happen. He described the Ombuds Office That was established as part of the UN's informal justice system, where a huge bureaucracy spread in many countries desperately needs a cost-effective and humane dispute resolution mechanism. Giuseppe also said that it's not only a matter of international organizations, including Bretton Woods institutions, but also gave examples from McKinsey hospitals and academia that have recently started adopting ombuds mechanisms. He enumerated the qualities expected from an ombuds person and underlined that the ombuds is the speaker of the uncomfortable truth. Lastly, we covered the easy opt-out system adopted in his native Italy. He used the analogy of sleeping beauty for mediation because in the absence of any mandatory requirement, voluntary mediation remains sleeping beauty. That's it for this time. I hope you enjoyed this program. I will upload a picture of Giuseppe De Paolo in the Instagram account of We Can Find A Way. I'm also going to have a Turkish translation of this program in the blog. I'm, as always, grateful to Efsane Şimayli Alçın for translating all this into Turkish. I will use Blogcast for those who don't want to read the Turkish translation but rather listen to it. I will also be tweeting some of the important quotes of Giuseppe De Paolo. Please let me know what you think of the podcast at ialvaris at icloud.com. Thank you and see you in the next program.
can find a way. Idil Elberich presented.